I stopped pushing. Beneath my battered hands, the wet machine ceased to function, its entropy dissipating into the hungry air. Behind me, a daughter wailed. Behind me, a son wept. And above us all, the emptiness beckoned. A yawning sky patiently awaiting for our inevitable supplication. My eyes drew upward, and I embraced the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 209 of Embrace the Void, where the vibes are really flowing. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we've got part one of a great chat on one of my most disliked concepts. So let's make like sages and get natural. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Alan Levinovitz, a professor of religion and science at James Madison University and the author of Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. Alan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, everybody. How's it going? Pleasure to be with The Void today. Yeah, I'm really glad that we get to finally chat. We've been going back and forth on Twitter for a while now, and I think we've just got stores and stores of things to cover here. So I'm, I'm excited about it. But we're going to keep it, you know, grounded in material for people who are not very, very online like you and I. Terrific. That I, I like that a lot. And grounded in, you know, words and and vocabulary that's accessible to non-specialist audience. That's always, that's sort of like, that's my, my thing. I like that. Yeah. Great. So we're going to talk about natural, which is the focus of your book. So, you know, to be nice and grounded here, I assume you could just provide me an easy functional definition of natural to get us started here, right? Absolutely. So a lot of people think that natural is this hard word to define. They get very complicated and metaphysical and use all sorts of terms here. I'm going to say what natural is. Natural uh-huh. is anything, any any form of organization that isn't caused by the human will. So I think that's a really great hmm. shorthand way to think about it. So unnatural is organization of any kind, you know, in the world that is, could be the organization of yourself, right? So like okay. any willed, any willed thing is unnatural. And so, so like all domesticated plants and animals are unnatural? Yeah, well, so, so hold on. So I'm going to get, okay. so it's not, the other thing to know about natural is that this is a binary. So, or it's not okay. a binary, it's a spectrum, right? So okay. on, on right. one end, the ultimate unnatural is everything that existed before human beings. So before humans were on this earth, there was everything was natural because mm-hmm. nothing was willed by us. Mm-hmm. And then at the other end of the spectrum are things where virtually every feature of their organization owes something genealogically to mm-hmm. w- willed humans, right? So we wanted to organize reality in this way. Without it, it wouldn't be there. So then we can quibble, and there's you know you could have interesting discussion about like, well, so is so is a plastic 
you know, is a plastic plant more or less natural than a plant that's been genetically engineered, but is a real mm. plant, you know, is the form mm-hmm. of the plant where they're not, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have answers to that, but I think that that mm-hmm. spectrum of mm-hmm. natural equals unwilled by humans, unnatural equals willed by humans is pretty, is, is a pretty great and easy way mm-hmm. to understand the meaning of natural. Okay, cool. I think that is actually useful and does capture sort of what people think of. So for example, I think one intuitive concern folks have about radical geoengineering of the planet to deal with climate change is that there would be no natural left, right? Everything would be part of the causal, you know, nexus being influenced by humans, for example. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So so I, there is a kind of, that's almost an aesthetic sort of fear. So when people say mm-hmm. things like there's not a corner of the globe that hasn't mm-hmm. been a little influenced by humans, that's supposed to sound apocalyptic like like we are mm-hmm. and this is some one of the things i want to get away from the book this this sense like oh we've polluted everything now like there's nothing that isn't beyond our grimy fingers whereas i, I don't think that you know just because nothing is purely natural anymore if, if that's the case if that's what i want to think about which is true right in the sense that human if human will has changed the climate in certain ways mm-hmm. then obviously nothing that's affected by that climate is fully or purely natural that doesn't mm-hmm. have to be bad um, mm-hmm. And yet it's talked about in that way at the same time, and we'll probably get to this, I understand why people might see it that way or why that might mm-hmm. be a compelling perspective. And I think it's important to figure out why that's a compelling perspective and, and, and when we can use the word unnatural as a kind of cautionary word and when we shouldn't. Yeah, and I think a lot of what matters is the sort of evaluative connections that we associate with this word, both sort of moral and non-moral kinds of evaluative uh, connections. So I'm curious, well, you know, we'll go through a couple of versions of that, but you personally, do you feel like you have any evaluative associations when you, at this point for you with the word natural? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a, I, I collect rocks. I mean, I'm not an intense collector or a very knowledgeable collector, but I'm marginally knowledgeable and marginally intense. <laughs> and I, one of the things, collectors like myself often care about is whether or not something is natural. And that's, Mm -hmm. it's not just that we care about it. It's that, um, you know, there's all sorts of quibbling, technical quibbling in professional societies. So academic uh, mineralogists, but what counts as a mineral and what doesn't. And often human will is a part of those discussions. So I'll just give you a sort of wonky Mm -hmm. example. Um, there's there's slag was being thrown in the ocean you know thousands of years ago roman mines um would, mm. would, would throw slag into the ocean and then unique minerals would form on the slag and so then there's this mm. question in mineralogical societies well does this count is it a na- is it natural <laughs> or is it not natural likewise um when on land if if someone digs out a mine and then minerals form in that mine that are unique minerals well, those mm-hmm. natural minerals in the sense that humans did not will the existence of the formation of those minerals, are they unnatural in the sense that they wouldn't have existed without this mine, which was willed by humans? So that that kind of stuff is very important to me. And mm-hmm. I, I also have plants. I like plants. I'm an indoor plant enthusiast. And I care whether or not, for example, the cactus that I'm buying has had the colorful head that's on it grafted there. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's there naturally. Those are those are things I care about. Let me ask you, you you framed this in terms of natural is dependent on whether it's been intervened with by humans. 
I'm curious though, willed, is it willed by willed by humans? Will by humans, excuse me, will by humans, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh yes, will by humans. So is it just humans though, right? If we found an alien species that was also altering its planet, would we consider that similarly unnatural? And is it like is it more just willed by an intelligence? And then we have a question, I think a, a tricky question of like, you know, when an octopus builds a den, right? Is that unnatural because it has a kind of intelligent design to it? Built so, so built into this, I guess, strong binary definition or strong mm-hmm. binary heuristic for figuring out whether something's natural or not, uh, or to what extent it's natural. Um, I think I'm making a pretty sharp distinction between humans and mm-hmm. all other animals, mm-hmm. and to the extent that aliens are, you know, uh, uh, people really like aliens' thought experiments. I'm. I, <laughs> less mm-hmm. enamored of aliens and stuff. They're fun, I guess, as much as anything else. Um, I, it depends on the extent to which humans are or aren't like humans, I guess, is what I would say. So, mm-hmm. you know, if aliens are just creatures that have, quote unquote, mindlessly or unwillingly um, evolved to a state where they're zipping around the universe and doing all kinds of stuff, then I'd say they're natural. <laughs> and if, mm-hmm. the, if the aliens mm-hmm. were like, you know, I'd like to build a ship, uh-huh. let's alter let's alter the world and i just and, and and the thing i'm hypothesizing there and i don't want to let this get too far afield because it's sort of a kind of question about the you know what is it that makes humans unique et cetera, et cetera. we have a piece with mm-hmm. other creatures is is the idea that like we are in some sort of deep metaphysical sense different from animals it, which is why for example we don't ever blame animals for anything um, even the gorilla, no one's yeah. ever like, now that was a bad gorilla, uh, an evil gorilla. And, and, and maybe that's the right, maybe that's the right way to view animals is just to, but I think the humans are unique in the sense that they are rational objects of blame and praise, uh, mm-hmm. in ways that all other existing intelligences are not ranging yeah. from computer computers and AIs to, to, you know, um, bonobos. Yeah, I could pull us way far afield in terms of the moral responsibility questions there. But I just I do think it is important, at least when discussing this concept of natural, to press a little bit on the human association, because I think historically, as you say, humans have been put apart from nature in a way that justified all sorts of like immoral behaviors towards nature as well. Justified things like climate change and stuff like that um, by our, you know, our dominant will, our God given dominant will or something. Right. We feel that we are able to alter this world in certain kinds of ways. So um, I do think I do think that we commonly conventionally think of it in the way that you're describing, um, though, I, I wonder if. If, if it should be broadened out to other forms of intelligence a little bit more. Um, but, um, okay, so let me, I, I want to actually just throw some cards on the table here for a second, right? My favorite part about talking about this with you, you know, coming from an ethics background, I, I have to admit, I hate the concept natural. And it may just sure. be the way that it shows up in the ethics world. But like, it, to me, it has been a genuinely useless concept that I like less and less every time I, I've, I've come across it. And so, of course, I enjoyed your book, which was largely, I think, fairly critical of most of the many of the uses of natural. That being said, right, I do think at some points in your book, you also and, and here you're suggesting a little bit that like natural might still be a useful heuristic potentially in certain situations. So I guess like, you know, what would you say is your most generous read of when it is a useful heuristic? And like, what are some concrete examples where you think it's good for people to talk about natural and unnatural? Yeah, absolutely. So in the context of uh, scientific inquiry, for example, 
And I talk about this a bit in the natural birth chapter, but to the extent that natural um, describes often biological systems that are complicated and interconnected and tend towards certain forms of homeostasis, um, even if they are dynamic and change over time, they, that they have a kind of organized homeostasis that they tend towards, that it's not unreasonable to think that if you dramatically alter a feature of a natural system, that the homeostasis will be altered in ways that cause the organization of that system to collapse. And so is a hypothesis generating heuristic. If you see any system collapsing and that system is a natural one, mm -hmm. it's not unreasonable to say to yourself, I wonder if it's because there's been some kind of radical interference with the natural system by us humans mm -hmm. willing mm -hmm. the change. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one place where I think it's really obviously useful and important. And another place is with how humans make meaning. Origin stories are important. I think that's fine and understandable. And even I mean, if you want to use a moral word, justifiable in a variety of ways. I just I don't think we can eliminate mm -hmm. the importance of origins without doing a great deal of damage to how we understand reality and morality and accountability. So, so that's another place. And if, insofar as natural stands for origins in certain ways, mm -hmm. that's, that's a place where I can understand. Can you unpack what you mean by origins a bit there? Do you just mean like, we want to make sure that everybody understands they evolved from filthy monkey men or something? No, no. I mean, okay. just in general for everything. So by origins, uh -huh. I just mean where something came from. Mm -hmm. Like we want to know where things came from. And that can mm -hmm. seem sort of irrational sometimes, you know, it's well, why do you care where this came from? Well, shouldn't you only care about, for example, whether it has harmed the world or whether it works? Uh, there's sort of a crassly utilitarian way of understanding the nature of things and the value of things that just separates them entirely from the question of origins. Whereas mm -hmm. I think that the question of origins makes sense as, as a sort of, ontological i said i wasn't going to get into like wonky terms but like a an ontological <laughs> for 12 feature, minutes this an, is really good for both of us an ontological feature of the object and again i don't want to like get too far away from it but i'll take a very concrete example which is autographs so i'm a you know i love books and i collect books and one thing that collectors care about is something known as provenance um, which is a a record of where the thing has come from, whether it's a painting or an autographed book. And the reason people care about that record is because they wanna make sure that the, the Abraham Lincoln signature in their book is from, it was from Abraham Lincoln's hand rather than someone else's. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if the molecules in the signature are identical. It, it, the value of the signature and, and in a certain way, an important part of its being lies not in its physical reality, but in its genealogy. And I just think that's a, that's a very complicated, but also very important thing to understand about how objects mean in the world. Um, yeah. and, I, and I'm okay with that. It's, a, it's a, That's an interesting one for me. I have really mixed feelings about it because it shades into, to for me, a kind of fetishizing of past and of tradition and things like that in a way that I'm not 
sympathetic to though i i think i can probably find a space for that in my in my morality by thinking about like you know a cherished gift that someone has given me there that it matters go. that it's that particular object that they gave exactly. me or something mm -hmm. of course it matters you know mm -hmm. and it matters that it's your grandma's recipe or it mm -hmm. matters that that the object has survived for thousands of years that that mm -hmm. makes it duration over time is just, I mean, we could get into a sort of, that's a totally different discussion, but as a, the, to, to think that something is, is sort of in, intrinsically valuable simply because of the amount of time it's existed, I don't think is actually crazy at all. I mm -hmm. think there's, I think there's something, you know, if not reasonable, then certainly understandable and, 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 and not obviously stupid about caring that something's been around for a long time or came mm -hmm. from the ancient past. Um, it's, it's super special. I don't know. Yeah. I just think that's fine. And that's a, and that's another way to go back to the original question that inspired all of this. That's mm -hmm. another way in which I think that caring about whether something is natural is mm -hmm. a kind of proxy for caring about whether it has been around for a long time or been authored, if you will, to use an, uh, the kind of metaphor that I like to take apart in the book because of how distorting it is authored by, by a hand that is not our own. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really cool and important and interesting. How much of that value do you think is like the, again, the idea of like it stood the test of time or something like that versus literally just anything that's been around long enough has a value, has accrues value merely by existing? I think so there's both, yeah, right? Both, uh -huh. both things. And, and, and neither, I think it depends on the context, but neither is an unreasonable consider thing to take into account. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Um, sorry, go ahead. Let's finish your thought. No, that's it. That's um, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's interesting there because in asking you that, I realize those are examples where it could be valuable, but they're also sort of clear cut cases where this can be misused and abused, right? The fetishizing of this thing is real. This is ancient wisdom, right? It's really old. It comes from, Absolutely. you know, an ancient culture or something like that it really does. But it, like it does trigger that part of our brains that, that like associates that value heavily. Yep, that's absolutely right. And that's why in the book, I try I make it a point, as you know, to talk about a particular kind of what I say is a religious conception of nature or naturalness. And I think that's really important. And when I say religious, I'm, you know, I'm also someone who's constantly harping online and possibly in writing someday if I get around to it about mm -hmm. about bad analogies to religion. They frustrate me a lot. People have to say everything is religious. Sports oh, have there been some online recently? Yeah, I'm not sure I've all the time. No, people, do, people do all the <laughs> I sports. Can, is, I can't. Yeah, I, I yeah, cover yeah, James yeah. Lindsay like, frequently. Know, yeah. So everyone, right? Sports is a religious ritual. And this is something that mm -hmm. happens in religious studies that frustrates me. But mm -hmm. in the case of nature and naturalness, I actually think religion is a very tight analogy and very important, which is that the reason people make these sorts of mistakes that I detail in the book is because they believe that nature is like a benevolent God, that that is where the value comes from. Mm -hmm. And therefore anything more natural equals pure or good. And if something is natural, then it must be good in all ways that, mm -hmm. that, that it is, it will be a panacea or it will be, it will lead to a utopia or that it was once the key to a utopia. And it's those sorts of quasi theological understandings of nature that that i think are at the at the root of the, mm -hmm. the, the bad ways that this concept gets deployed um if i can take us into some practical politics here just for a second this is actually something when you mentioned purity this is something that i wanted to run past you as, as a sort of 
a theory I've been developing about the horseshoe theory of naturalness, which is that I think there is a political loop around that happens around purity and naturalness. Um, you know, uh, moral psychologists have theorized that one of the people like Hyde have theorized that like purity is one of the key moral foundations and that you see it being more popular amongst the conservative and the religious and it being tied to that sort of stuff being a little sort of less comfortable amongst the left and liberals but there does seem to me to be a, a substantial and sort of growing portion of the left quote unquote that gets its purity through this kind of naturalness alternative medicine you know all these different kinds of um woo and i think we're, we're seeing that play out in the way that like if you look at the QAnon spaces they are this weird mix of like um alternative health stuff and like far-right anti-globalist conspiracy stuff does that sort of diagnosis match with what you've seen and experienced yeah i mean yeah yes in certain ways so i'm, I'm wary in a way that i wouldn't have been before with words like woo um mm. but okay i take your i take your point that and i and i agree that naturalness is sort of, I mean, I was just tweeted about this recently. The naturalness is a very bipartisan idea. I don't think it's a new thing. I think people have, that natural has been powerful, as I argue again in the book, you know, transculturally and transhistorically. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is quasi-theological. And in the same way that God, and you know, if you're religious, God agrees with whatever it is that you believe. Um, so too for naturalness, you know, natural lines up with whatever your political ideology happens to be or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. So, so in that sense, I, I think, and I hope to have shown in the book that naturalness has actually been decoupled from any explicit, you know, it's not, it doesn't belong to one political ideology or the other, and mm -hmm. people are always deploying it to, to justify their claims in ways that I find frustrating and problematic. And also sometimes in ways that I think are really illuminating of why people, you know, of what it is that people actually care about. Um, yeah. I think that's you right. Know, I mean, there's a, just, a, just, you know, just as an, exa an example, um, the kind mm -hmm. of the, the, the rhetoric of sort of conservative political principles in a kind of Berkeyan tradition, like you were saying, you know, it stood the test of time, so we shouldn't mess with it too much, um, mm -hmm. or we should mess with it carefully and cautiously, is, 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 is a mirror image of what you will see in just standard academic ecology. And so mm -hmm. a lot of what it is to be conserve to literally be a conservationist about the environment right. <laughs> is to take the print the political prints or, or you know is to, is to simply say about the about ecosystems what it is that Berkey and conservatives have been saying about political systems mm -hmm. which is you know and and to the extent that you know humans are natural beings and therefore we should think about them perhaps and their systems in the same way that we think about ecosystems which is something else you see people on the left and the right saying it's not a left or right sort of thing then that kind of that then this way in which that it makes sense that you'd have a horseshoe theory which is that everyone mm -hmm. would want to appeal to this idea of mm -hmm. naturalness as a as a heuristic for figuring out what's good or right it's interesting the way you describe it there i think it illuminates another sort of key facet of the natural which is the almost mystical level of complexity, right? The reason we're supposed to go slow from the ecological perspective is you're dealing with a system that's incredibly complex that you don't really understand very well and that you could really, you know, like throw a wrench into very quickly with your interventions. Um, and I, I like, I think we get to a point almost where we see the complexity of nature as being this kind of mystical thing that maybe is, is permanently beyond our knowability or only knowable through supernatural means or something like that as well, or through yeah. um, revelation. Mm -hmm. 
hey, I put you know put my cards on the table. Um, and this is this is something I don't talk about too much in the book, but it's 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 important, which is that I'm no I'm no theist, but mm-hmm. I certainly think it's pretty mystical. <laughs> that stuff <laughs> that all this stuff exists like the purple plant in the corner of my room and human beings and antelopes and octopuses and the oceans and the universe is mm-hmm. pretty freaking mysterious and to the extent that to say that nature is mystical it, it, with a capital m to me seems pretty obvious <laughs> i don't know mm-hmm. i don't mean obvious in like a pejorative sense i just mean like yes ah yes of course like no joke this stuff is wild, you it, know? It makes sense to you why Spinoza would call it God and nature or God or nature. Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing mm-hmm. walking around in this miraculous reality all the time. Yeah, and I think it's important that we retain the ability, even as we try to, I think it's valuable, demystify nature for people to some extent so as to make them less susceptible to appeals to nature and and natural fallacies and things like this we don't want to make it you know you have to stop thinking that nature is magical and special and amazing in these kinds of ways right you want to keep that sense of awe Mm -hmm. absolutely you can you can love nature without worshiping it Mm, Um, yeah that's a good way to put it um so all right so let's look at the flip side of this sum right so in the book you talk about nature as as a sort of flattening concept um which another way i think we could talk about it is as as a kind of thought terminating cliche in a sense um what are some like that's a nice way to put it right this is that's from um the recent book cultish which is a great book about the way that cults use language to shut down uh thinking um and i just listened to it recently right after your book and i was like these things go well together um yeah Yeah. so as a sort of thought terminating cliche sort of what are some examples you see of that flattening effect that produces you would say sort of harmful narratives gosh where to start (laughs) um I think uh, sexuality is a great place. Sure. That's, where I, that's my first because, place to start every time. I think that's a good one and it's intuitive. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what is permissible sexually? What kinds of desires are permissible sexually? Um, it's a place where I actually think figuring it out is pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. And so we look to as is so often the case, uh, uh, some kind of thought, what was a thought terminating cliche so that we can just take our intuition and go with it without having to struggle over something, which is simultaneously extremely important and very complicated. And so natural is a really nice way to figure out how to justify whatever sexual mores we happen to think are ethical. And so I think as a really great example, Mm -hmm. um, you would find that there is not, obviously bipartisan agreement on whether being transgender is natural. Mm-hmm. And I think you will find that given that it is a contested sexuality right now, if you will, um, that, that people who are suspicious of it would say something like, well, it's not natural. That's not mm-hmm. natural. This isn't natural. And actually a lot of people and I'm seeing this now in the same way that it was the case with homosexuality a while back sure. mm-hmm. saying like, well, we found, we finally found the brain thing. It is natural. Like we found the differences between transgender brains and mm-hmm. cisgender brains as if that would therefore end the important objections to this mm-hmm. particular kind of sexuality. Whereas to me, this is a case in which we should be that that's, that's a bad way to think <laughs> that's a bad way to use natural. 
Um, it's not we... a heuristic for the kinds of sexuality that are moral or immoral. So what do you do then if you're on the left, right, and the right is saying being gay is unnatural? Is it is it a mistake, do you think, to even point to, like, all the gay animals out there in nature Absolutely. or something? You think, so you think you should just avoid playing into that argument right. at all? The animals just, have okay. nothing to do with that. I mean, I talk about it briefly. But aren't you, the think, book, aren't you then I conceding, don't... I mean, like, you're ceding to them that ground sort of psychologically. Sure. If, we've, if we've agreed that, like, naturalness has this strong effect on people, you know, like, politically, you're ceding a lot of ground to them there, it seems like. Sure. Okay. So you, I, you, I, you know, I mean, than, than I, this is them. not a, well, well, mm -hmm. well, no, 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 no. I mean, this is not a, you know, I've advised people sometimes, I've advised companies, for example, um, mm -hmm. or people that want nuclear energy accepted on what kinds of, what, what tropes or genres should they use to, and one thing that, you know, some doctors have said is like, well, actually, you know, vaccinations do work naturally. They work with your natural immune system, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, is that more effective for getting the kinds of results that we want short term? You know, is a political question. I, you know, I don't know. I can't answer that. I do think that long term we should be discouraging people from finding that compelling to begin with. So okay. to the extent that it is compelling or effective politically, therefore, doesn't mean that I think that's a good idea. I think it'd be better to get away from that long term mm -hmm. when it comes to being able to have productive discussions about whether we want nuclear power plants around or solar panels around or what kind of sexuality is acceptable or unacceptable. So do you think naturalness should have any role in our discussions about sexuality? Sure, absolutely. So uh, to take the example that I gave before of biological systems, mm -hmm. if, if it is the case that we can say about a human biological system that there seems to be this kind of homeostasis in it, um, whether it's about, you know, a human community or an individual human being. And this thing seems to be a departure from it. Mm -hmm. and that homeostasis, that average, or that norm or whatever it happens to be. Natural is often associated with normal, right? That is that mm -hmm. association. Then we might be interested in finding out, for example, well, is this caused by humans? Like, is this, a, that's, that's just a good thing to know about, mm -hmm. uh, about forms of sexuality. And so once we know whether or not the sexual proclivity of which many are obviously, I think, influenced by or caused by humans, um, you know, being into anime <laughs> right. uh, sexually is certainly caused by humans, right. um, you know, so that's a that's a helpful thing to know when we're discussing being into anime. And that's a, I, you, you see what I'm saying? Like facts about the world are mm -hmm. good when we're discussing things, but they, we just need to make sure to not make the fact itself normative. Yeah. So I wonder then, like, obviously, it's good to know things about the world. But when we're then doing our normative calculations, does it matter at all? Right? Like, let's say, you know, a particular sexual behavior is deeply, deeply unnatural, right? But it doesn't cause harm, right? it doesn't throw up any red flags on any of the other moral foundations. Should we care at all? No. Okay. Just curious. Unless, of course, <laughs> uh -huh. unless, of course, uh -huh. um, you know, I, I, so yeah, so I guess I want to complicate that. Should, I, I, that no was sort of meant legislatively or, you know, <laughs> okay. moral system wise. Policy. But I actually, yeah, but, I, but as, an, as an individual human being, caring about whether you align with what's natural seems to me to be not unreasonable in the same way that you might care about a lot of stuff that isn't normative like wanting to be beautiful. 
um, you know, according to, you know, according to society standards, right? There's lots of people that care about that. And you might say to them, for example, well, that's because there's lots of advantages to being beautiful, right? You only care about being beautiful because of the benefits that follow from it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think there's just something to, you know, some, some people have certain aesthetic preferences about their lives and how they want to be and how they imagine themselves that aren't, I think, normative but are understandable aesthetically. And so I, I don't think it's crazy to have someone say, well, I just prefer natural things. I like naturalness in certain areas of my life. It's something I'm attracted to. It's something I find beautiful or valuable. Um, that doesn't seem crazy to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the same way that someone might say, I like unnatural things. Mm -hmm. Like I really value them. I like departing from the sort of order that I associate with having existed over time or something like that. I like, I like novelty, right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as created by humans. So th that's what I mean by, I wouldn't want to get that completely out of the picture. Yeah. So the, you're sort of describing there the kind of technophobe, technophile dif difference there a little bit, that's it feels right. like, right? That like, yeah. and, and that there could be healthy versions of both of those, essentially. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think I am sympathetic to that. Um, it, you know, I just, I don't, maybe it's a, maybe it's a corrective concern at the, I mean, it's, it's hard. Everything's always sort of shifting back and forth about how, how too seriously are people taking things like this? I feel like when I was younger, there was less concern about the natural and more emphasis on like, look at, you know, the power of science and, and man to make you know technology to make all of these new things, this new world and such. And now as climate change has become sort of has loomed large for everyone, I think it's probably driving a shift back towards concerns about naturalness, which I then worry is creating a large space for a lot of abuse um, as people who feel like they can't do anything to substantially address issues like climate change fall back on doing things that like gurus tell them are natural when in terms of, you know, their actual well-being are actually, you know, costly for them or harmful. Yeah, I mean it's tough. You know, it's tough. So I mean, take um, I don't know. Uh, you talk about the health. Let's take buying organic. I think it's a great mm -hmm. example. Yeah, this is a good one um, for me too. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I used to sort of be ruthlessly utilitarian about stuff like buying organic or recycling or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, having your home garden. You know, are you having your home garden to fight climate change? That's ridiculous. You know, or recycling. That's just companies outsourcing their guilt to individuals so that they can continue to do the stuff that actually causes problems. Something like that. But, but I've come to see the, the value of things like that, mm -hmm. not just independent of, like, it's bad if you think that what you're doing is going to be the solution. Mm -hmm. But if what we think of those things as is rituals that declare one's allegiance. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way, it's like a bumper sticker, or it's a way of affirming to yourself something you care about. Um, and, and displaying that to the world and to yourself, I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with it. I understand that, um, you know, a prayer to the, a prayer to the, a prayer to the future that climate change may one day be over is useful, even if there's no God answering it, because it affirms your commitment and it makes you feel, you know, can help you motivate to do other stuff and mm -hmm. care and go, you know, so I, I think that's it, that that's that's part of what makes it tricky. I wanted to go into this book just dismissing everything, mm -hmm. but 
it is not just a Richard Dawkins book, but about nature instead of God. I, I ended mm-hmm. up in a place that just wasn't there where I, I don't want to just say, well, get rid of your, your stupid rituals because organic, you know, here's the study that shows organic isn't better for your health or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. I, I end up in the middle place, I think, as well, because I do agree that psychologically there's a, a kind of efficacy to performance and that like people who engage in those sorts of rituals that could, you know, lead to other kinds of behaviors that may also bring about substantial differences voting consistently for people who care about one particular issue over another or something like that. I think the concern, of course, would be, you know, are you exerting all of your energy in that ritualistic or most of your energy in that ritualistic kind of way and not doing the kind of things that actually bring about material change or something like that. Absolutely. So that's, you know, I I talk about that in the book a little, this idea of consecrated consumption, where Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be the case that people can absolve themselves of their duties in a a crassly utilitarian way. For example, Mm -hmm. voting for the the wind farm that obstructs your view, mm-hmm. um, which is going to do a hell of a lot more for sustainable energy in your area than the, than the recycling ritual that you engage in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want that to be the case, but that doesn't have to be the case. I don't, I don't think that there's a, I don't think this is a zero sum game. Often, often rituals, you know, it's not like there is a ritual shaped hole that you mm-hmm. either plug by voting the right way or recycling things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both can coexist. And so, yeah. And so that's, that's just something I, that's just something I think is important and, and worth noting and commenting on. I don't sneer at those. And even, even I was going to say to, to, to address something you just said, mm-hmm. there was a kind of utilitarian bent to what you were saying, which was like, well, sometimes we can show that rituals actually help with the stuff that's really useful, quote unquote. But mm-hmm. I even mean this just in a sense that's decoupled from a utilitarian analysis at all. It's just nice to it's nice to give thanks mm. to the world or to tell the world that you care about it and to dedicate a part of your life to doing that for no other reason than that that is a beautiful thing to do. Mm-hmm. I, I apologize. It's mostly because I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people who are less sympathetic to the existence of intrinsic value that I spend so much time making references back to, um, uh, you know, extrinsic kinds of value and the things that, you know, like the good outcomes or something like that. But I am actually sympathetic to your view. I'm, I, I am a moral realist and a value realist. And I think that there are sort of valuable things out there in the world that are valuable, not just because we choose to value them and stuff like that. And that puts me in a pretty weird place for an atheist, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to this, Um, but let's, I want to, what you're bringing up here about the organic, I think is great because I want to make this concrete for folks in the world, right? So you have a good chapter in your book about natural versus processed. And it really highlights, I think how, you know, our consumption and uh, you know our thoughts about this are are sort of unavoidably attached to capitalism, to these exploitative potentially global trade and things like that. Um, so you know, let's just imagine as a hypothetical that I were a person who had to go grocery shopping. Right, I'm in the store. Like, what do I do when I'm trying to buy something? In your book, you talk about vanilla, for example. Right, I'm staring at vanilla. Right, how do I make a, an ethical and a thoughtful choice without reading a book about vanilla beans first, or like you know, listening to a twelve-hour podcast about the, the sources of vanilla beans or something like that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I get asked that uh, I, like pretty often. Actually, people oh. want to know like, well, what? How should I? 
not, I mean, this specifically, but how should, okay. So given all this book on natural, how, what should I do? Right. How right. does this guide? Unfortunately, part of, part of the conclusion of the book, which is not a very good self-help book is that you, there's not that we need to, that there is no good answer to those questions. The mm. reason we have things like God or holy or pure or natural is that there are very complicated questions that require all sorts of nuanced reasoning and knowledge if you want to actually answer them in a, in a kind of well-informed utilitarian way. So instead we need labor-saving heuristics like, well, this is the natural one, or this is the organic one, or this is the kosher one, or this is the cheapest one. Or this is the most expensive one. Or in my case, this is the second least expensive glass mm -hmm. of wine on the menu. Mm -hmm. um, these, are the, these are the heuristics we use because we can't reason it through. So for the person who's in the store, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a weaseling my way out, but it depends on what they value. Um, mm -hmm. Are they trying to save money? Then they, you know, who am I to say they should buy the more expensive thing? I, I, think, it's, I think it's up to our government to make sure that everything in that, uh, in that store is safe. So safety, they should not fear for their life when it comes mm -hmm. to what they're buying. Right. Um, but, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of options because people value a lot of different things. Do you feel like there's there's no sort of within your grocery store a red line where you would say, look, it's unethical for you to like they shouldn't be selling that to you. But given that they are, you shouldn't be buying it like, you know, pate or something or, you know, a particular type of um you know nut or something that takes 10 million gallons of water to produce or something like that yeah i'm really i'm personally pretty hesitant to put the burden on the consumer um i just don't think that's where i want to locate the labor that goes into making the right decision mm -hmm. at, uh, in a place like a supermarket mm -hmm. so do I personally use heuristics that, that are related to ethics to guide me when I'm buying my food? Um, honestly, not really. And this is, you know, some people are going to disagree. You know, I'm not a vegetarian, for example. So there's an obvious place where you could use a kind of heuristic to guide what you buy in a, in a supermarket. I'm not a vegetarian. So basically, to me, everything is, again, it's a personal thing. Given where my mm -hmm. values are and where my tastes are, everything in in the supermarkets I go to is fair game ethically. So mm -hmm. all I'm so all I'm thinking about is I mean I don't want to okay here's something I don't want to do I don't want to buy a ton of stuff and throw it away. So I don't want to just mm. just sort of actively waste things. So I that's one thing that guides me. I don't think it's moral to go into a store buy a ton of stuff specifically so that you can just throw it out. That seems to me to be kind of deeply wrong. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think there's anything in the stores I go into, at least, that's, that's morally, <laughs> morally, morally beyond my ability to buy. So then I use other things like price and do I think it will taste good? And is it the, you know, have we eaten it recently? <laughs> you know, I mean, pretty standard things that actually I think anyone who's listening to this probably also used to guide what it is that they buy in the store, right? Most of the time, I mean, there are some hardcore kind of, you know, effective altruists, I guess, who are probably doing the sorts of calculation you know, mm. bloodless ethical utilitarian calculus every, you know with every with every soy sausage they buy but um i don't i'm not i i don't i don't think that way i think you can go to the I store think, you know i don't think it always has to be bloodless right so for example i i'm also not a vegetarian um you know but when i purchase meat 
right? I don't purchase like the cuts that are the kind of cuts that a lot of people tend to buy because there's an excess of, you know, there's, there's, there's an excess demand for those. And so if I purchase the cheaper, you know, less preferred cuts, not only are they cheaper, but like it, it's, you know, you're not wasting parts of the animal to I some think, extent, right? Is that, I think that's yeah. great. I think that's totally great. I think it's great if people reduce the amount of meat they consume because mm -hmm. they believe that meat is contributing to climate change. I also think it's fine if people continue to, <laughs> I mean, it sounds very controversial, but like, I also think it's fine if people continue to consume larger quantities of meat. Um, I, I just, again, I don't, I don't, obviously we need to voice our preferences. And so would I vote for laws that would tax products commensurate to their effect on climate change is decided by experts. Absolutely. I would okay. do that. But again, that's a very different kind of thing than what should you buy in the supermarket? I don't know if that distinction makes sense, but I think it's an important one. Oh no, it's really important. And um, the second question I wanted to ask was to shift you from, you know, because uh, I'm sympathetic to the idea that like the epistemic weight, the ethical, you know, problem solving, we want to take the weight off consumers more and that it's, you know, our current system puts the burden on consumers so that corporate you know, entities, I think, can get away with selling things that they probably shouldn't be selling or something like that. Right. So if you're if you're for taxing, I'm, I'm curious what other kinds of mechanisms you're comfortable with at the systemic level for reducing that burden on the consumer you've mentioned obviously keep things out of their hands that are going to just outright kill them right does that extend to things like cigarettes does it extend to you know certain kinds of foods that are particularly like high in harms or something like that no um, no but again again this has and this is sort of this, these questions are completely for me decoupled from questions of na nature and naturalness. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not much of a, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty agnostic about political philosophy, like uh, political philosophy. So in some cases, I think taxing sodas, um, I, I mean, it's just, for me, the question is, does it work? Um, what kind of evidence do we have that it works? If it works it, to produce results that are beneficial in terms of reducing human suffering or reducing the impact on, on mm -hmm. climate change in ways that people find sustainable, then I think we should do them. Um, and if they don't, then they're not. Mm. Uh, but 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 that's separate. That I think that a lot of times people okay. want to use naturalness as their heuristics for figuring out what laws to vote on or what is right with a capital R. That's where I think things get that get off the rails. Okay, so bringing it back to this sort of natural idea in particular, then. Do you think, for example, that we should have laws that better regulate who can call something natural or that we ban the use of like the term natural in marketing or something like that? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, I, again, the legal question, I'm not very sure about. It's really complicated because regulating the use of the word natural often reverberates through legal systems for all other kinds of regulations or could set precedent for regulating words like you know, puffery, which is the technical term for things like the best hot dog in the world. Right. Mm -hmm, um, sure. So I'm not I don't know how I feel about regulating the word natural. I think one way to answer that question, which is the way the FDA currently answers it and often how it's legislated is, does the use of the word substantially deceive consumers? Um, in mm -hmm. other words, does the use of the word cause consumers to believe something about about the product that's that that's reasonable for them to believe because of the word natural and is false? Mm -hmm. So that's one way of thinking. And if it does, then I think we should regulate it. People should not be allowed to use the word in a way that systemically deceives consumers about what it is that they're buying. That said, 
I would love really for everyone to be forced to read my book over and over again until <laughs> we got to a society where using that word wouldn't systemically deceive consumers in the same way that the best hot dog in the world mm-hmm. doesn't systemically believe and deceive people into thinking that they're not like, my God, this must be an extraordinary hot dog. They recognize puffery for what it is. I would love for natural to be that kind of word as well. Yeah, and I just wonder if it's possible, given the feedback loops between individuals in their society, if you can really get there when you're currently stuck in a society that is, you know, jamming the concept of natural into people's faces so much. So, like, you know, you say it shouldn't be used in situations where it will tell suggest to them something that is not true of the thing. And, you know, that's obviously the case of it, like it has a bunch of artificial preservatives or something in it that they're not being told about. But it might also just be like, what if it helps boost up um you know artificial demand right uh fake demand in that kind of sense like it it gives the person the impression that oh so so take 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 the supplement industry for example right this idea that you're full of toxins and you need to take this thing to be free of those toxins or something like that um you know is it yeah i just i want people to understand i want a public that understands that that's ludicrous okay (laughs) <laughs> and so they won't read the word in that way. I mean, that's in other words. So I, a great example of this is natural childbirth, where, I, again, something I talk about in the book, but I think distinction is really clear. So uh, is natural childbirth natural in the actual, you know, in the sense that the things that na- people that are doing natural childbirth are doing are relatively unchanged and not willed by humans? The definition that I we had at the beginning of the podcast. Well, mm-hmm. sometimes yes, sometimes no. Hunter-gatherers don't give birth in water baths, but it is reasonable to say that a cesarean section is less natural than a vaginal birth. Is it? Is it? What I want is people to see that when you say natural childbirth, that just doesn't mean healthier or better or more moral or better for your relationship with your child. While it can mean more like the way in which humans and other animals, mammals have given birth through the back through into the mists of time. And mm-hmm. if that's something that you care about, and I understand very much people wanting to participate in this kind of natural process, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Just let's have a population that recognizes that when someone says we support natural childbirths, they're not saying we support childbirths that are safer. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I want. Um, um, you know, that, that would be great. Yeah. And I thought this was a really interesting part of your book where you essentially argued that like, I, or I think maybe we're quoting somebody else arguing that, that the rise of natural childbirth in places like America is the result of unnatural childbirth being so effective, right? That it's That's gotten exactly so right. safe that you can get away with, you know, going back to nature in this kind of way. Yes. And this, this is something that happens again and again and again, is that natural has always been revered in certain ways. And that's something I stand by. There's a lot of people who argue that, oh, this is a modern thing. It's not modern. The idea mm-hmm. of natural is spontaneously generated. That is to say, willed by or unwilled by some organizing force that is not human beings. That idea, ha- people have loved it. Uh, for uh, for obvious reasons, it's right. incredible. Well, you studied Taoism, you know, right? Like Taoism yes, is all about sure. being natural, That's, right? There, there is, yes, well, at least, yes, at least the or those, those original Taoist texts, yeah, this idea of Zeran or the self-so is very, very important in Taoism. Um, so yeah, so we have that, but it's such a socially, condi- I, I want people to understand just how socially conditioned 
mm-hmm. that term is and the and and the places where we in, invoke it as virtuous depends on the cultural context so wilderness as opposed to nature the the idea that that, that it's actually our natural duty to tame the wilderness right so natural gets invoked in precisely the opposite way has to do with the fact that there used to be more dangerous things in nature. And so when I go backcountry in Yellowstone, part of the reason I'm able to enjoy this pure nature is because there's hospitals nearby, because I have bear spray on my belt, because I have a tent and a zero degree sleeping bag and all these things that, that allow me now to appreciate naturalness in this context mm-hmm. in a way that I wouldn't have been able to before. So that's just, again, something I want people to be aware of while simultaneously saying, no, of course it makes sense to love Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Of course it does. You don't have to give some kind of utilitarian forest bathing helps your depression mm-hmm. justification of why Yellowstone is value is valuable for its naturalness. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And this brings up another point in the book, I think, where you talked a little bit about sort of one of the potential areas of harm around naturalness is the sort of narratives that crop up around indigenous people and these kind of appeals to naturalness. And and that's particularly of interest to me because I've been reading a lot of like post-colonial stuff recently, which talks a lot about the way that natural is used to create these linkages that justify different kinds of behaviors um, and such like that. Do you want to sort of unpack a little bit more how you see the the connections between indigenous individuals and their um, activities and the way, especially the, the, like the white Western developed world talks about them and naturalness? Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a version of, it's something like Orientalism, mm-hmm. in which there is, um, you know, this kind of Orientalism, in which there is a, there is a, this is a, or a version, in other words, of the noble savage, right? If you want to think about, it, you mm-hmm. know, indigenous peoples of of North America, where there is, there are people who are who come before the fall. In that sense, they are closer to animals. They live instinctually mm-hmm. rather than intellectually. They do not use Western. I mean, there's, it's funny because this, this is, again, a bipartisan thing, right? This idea mm-hmm. that there was this Edenic past in which uh, this, this is a very left-wing progressive sort of thing. You hear a lot. All of the things that, that a progressive left-winger might dislike, the gender binary, capitalism, slavery, all of these things were not found in the Eastern, wise Eastern cultures of the yin-yang and the indigenous peoples who saw themselves as one with nature. And then it is only when the unnatural logic chopping Westerners came, you know, I just hate this sort of, it's just absurd. Um, And, and so that's, that leads to also, because it leads to a lot of absurd conclusions. uh, One of them being that in order to be authentically indigenous, you can't adopt modern practices mm-hmm. um and, and so i when i went to peru to visit the machigenga my guide it was just so funny he says you know i'm bringing you here as someone who actually cares about just meeting the indigenous people so you know a lot of guides will warn the machigenga before they come and then they dress up in you know the kind of garb that the that the tourist wants to see them in because it feels right. more authentic and that kind of thing is bizarre and gross um Right. This and is a so classic a anthropological way. problem, though, right? Like this kind of it is this this the feedback of performativity yeah. and stuff. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And it's interesting there. You sort of emphasized one half of what I see as the kind of narratives here, which is the noble savage. But there's kind of almost a like a Madonna whore pit and pedestal 
approach to the naturalness of indigenous people, right? Which is that they are sort of simultaneously, as you were saying, at one and, and peaceful and like that, but also, you know, overrun with bloodlust and sexuality and things <laughs> like that, right? Uh, so there's yes. this like, there's this weird uh, both sides to this problem. Yes. And, and again, with this sort of thought terminating cliche, I just love that term. Mm -hmm. One of the things that naturalness allows us to do when, say, we're trying to figure out when we're trying to answer, in my question, uselessly large, in my opinion, uselessly <laughs> large questions like mm -hmm. which civilization was better or when did we go wrong? Hey, hey we're I mean, doing culture the war in the part two. You got to save yeah. that stuff. <laughs> well, no, I just I mean, that's the culture war stuff. Yeah, it's for just sure. Kind of thing people oh, it is 100 percent culture war stuff. But yes, go ahead. Yeah, it is. But it's been, but but, you know, about, it's culture war stuff because it's everywhere stuff. Sure. And it's it's just ridiculous to me to try to tot up all the all the virtues and vices of some civilization and then figure out where they stand. And yet this is exactly how the the concept of natural often gets deployed um I, well, I find that I find that really frustrating. Well, yeah, and this is actually something that I've been struggling with recently as somebody who was raised progressive, right? Social progressive. I think you know I I believe strongly that society can and should make progress, but as I've sort of read you know post colonial literature and stuff like that, it raises real questions about like what do we mean by progress progress from what to what is it really genuinely progress can you call it progress if the cost of it is you know climate climate change and societal collapse and things like that um so like yeah i don't know i'm i'm in a i'm in a hard place at the moment these days trying to figure out sort of what you know like i do still think that progress is an important thing to value and hold to and i don't know exactly how to implement that or apply that in the world? Is that something you struggle with as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to know what we should do about the problems that we face civilizationally, um, which are unique and important as they are to every generation. And I don't want my thinking about those problems I, I want my thinking about those problems to be as informed and 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 accurate and predictive as possible. I would like to avoid climate change, and I would like my thinking about those problems to be effective. And so, to the extent that these kinds of the naturalness cliche can get in the way of my thinking in a nuanced fashion about those problems, I want to get it out of the way. And and so this a, a way to answer your question is well so how do we move forward then how do we know what kind of progress is good and what kind of progress is bad or something like that for me the answer and again this is a separate question sort of a virtue ethics kind of thing which is that well we should talk to each other and listen to each other and try to understand what the other people want and then move forward together as much as we can honoring other people's um, positions and desires and beliefs so that's that's how I think we move forward right mm -hmm. but sometimes in order to do that, we need to understand that, that, that naturalness and nature are valuable to humans, mm -hmm. that they are one of the ways in which humans make sense of the world and make meaning for themselves. And, and, and it is not my place to march in and say, well, that's ridiculous. You need to abandon that value. Um, so that's, that's, you can keep, you can have your cake and eat it too, in a sense, which is that you can get rid of natural as some kind of overarching heuristic for figuring out what the right thing to do is while also honoring that it's something that people value and that, that it makes sense to value, including for yourself. 
That makes sense. I think that's a good part. Well, a good point for us to take a pause here and um, we'll come back and do a part two and talk about the various ways in which this intersects, I think, with culture war issues and politics and current Sounds stuff great. a little bit. Um, but uh, before we go for, for part one here, do you want to let folks know where they can find you, Twitter handle, such like that? Sure. My Twitter handle is at Alan Levinovitz, which is phonetic. So even though it's scary, it's spelled exactly the way it sounds. <laughs> Levinovitz, not Vitch, not Wits. Mm. And, you know, people Google me, they find the kind of stuff I write. It's a pretty wide range of things, um, all sorts of stuff out there on the Internet. And then my book is available to be ordered, I think, from your preferred online bookseller and possibly in a brick and mortar store if that's mm. your if that's your approach, is natural. Um, so yeah, I'd love for people to check that out as well. I definitely recommend the very unnatural audio book um, as a way. Oh, to good. I'm glad. Content, I'm, yeah, so. I've heard good things about it. Mm -hmm. It was well read. So that's nice. Yeah, great. So this is great. I'll, uh, I'm looking forward to continuing our chat. Thanks very much, Alan. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly patron, Dan. And our longtime monthly and newest yearly patron, Intellectual Dark Wave. Check out their very online tunes. Um, as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Need More Camus, and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers, Cormot Orkman on Twitch, and as always, thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy, 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 Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, and maybe even subscribe to both. Leave them a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just four bucks a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, you know in your heart of hearts, you are the void and the void is you. 